All right, good morning, good morning. It's good to see everybody. We're glad that you're here this morning. And uh, we're thankful to be able to gather together and to worship the Lord this morning and to take some time uh, to open his word and uh, to just hear what the Holy Spirit has for us this morning. Uh, As was mentioned uh, earlier this morning, uh, we just want to continue to be praying for uh, Pastor Paul and Deborah as they're on sabbatical, if you're not aware. Uh, Pastor Paul is the lead pastor here and has been uh, serving at Riverside for a little over 10 years, and so he is on a uh, little bit of a sabbatical, and, uh, and so he is away and doing a variety of different things, uh, and right now he just wanted to extend, I spoke with him yesterday, uh, just to extend his uh, welcome and thankfulness for your prayers. Uh, so he's been, at this period of time in their sabbatical, they're doing a little bit of traveling, uh, like I said, that was mentioned before, and, uh, and so, let's see if I have, I don't know where I put the pictures here. Nope. Not there. Okay. Uh, so, I thought I had pictures, but uh, he is um, in Southeast Asia visiting some friends and uh, just really enjoying the time there, and it's good. And so, we just wanted to encourage you uh, with, uh, with that. I think we had mentioned this before, but just as a reminder uh, Pastor Paul, while he's on sabbatical, will continue uh, to receive his salary, but uh, there's been some questions. Uh, so if you would like to be able to contribute to some of the expenses uh, of different things that they're doing while they're on sabbatical, uh, you're encouraged and welcome to do that, and you can just designate that on your giving, and we'll make sure that that gets uh, to them. If you have any questions about that, uh, you can feel free to talk to any of the elders, and we'd be happy to just explain a little bit more. And if you'd like to know a little bit more detail about where he's at and what he's doing, uh, you're welcome to do that as well and to ask. So, uh, so this morning as we uh, dive in here, I just want to continue uh, with uh, our t- study on true spirituality. And I praise the Lord for Don's testimony. Amen. So uh, here's the reality, right, is that God is in the business of transformation And he's in the business of taking things uh, that are dead and broken and making them new and alive again. And uh, and so when we think about true spirituality, right, that's what we're talking about is it's not just sort of checking the boxes. It's not a, uh, you know, do more, work harder, be better uh, approach, but rather it's an alignment with the heart of God uh, and recognize him as our heavenly father and then we talked about last week about how God wants, uh, what he wants most from us really is the surrender in our lives. And we've been looking at Romans chapter 12 and uh, how it unpacks really true spirituality through relationship, right? That spiritual growth really is about relationships. It's about our relationship with God. It's about our relationship with other people that he brings into our lives, And we're going to look at a variety of these different relationships as we walk through the book of Romans in chapter 12 as we study that together. And so last week we looked specifically at the relationship with God. What is it that God wants most from us? And we looked at the life of Abraham and talked about uh, this idea of surrender. That really in order to get all that God wants for us, we need to be willing to give everything up. And that God calls us to a life of surrender. And so this morning we want to continue on and we're going to be uh, looking at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And I want to ask this question is, 
You know, what is it that you want from God? Uh, what is it, if you, if you had the opportunity to receive God's very best for your life, what would that look like? And what would it look like in your life specifically? And so here's the thing, is these two things kind of go in tandem, that when we surrender, when we give everything over to the Lord, then he also gives us everything in return. He gives us not just hope and life, but he gives us his presence and his blessing in the lives that we live in the here and now. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open to Romans chapter 12. We're just going to be there briefly, and then we'll come back to it at the end. Uh, But this is the the passage that we're going to focus on for this morning. Uh, This is Romans chapter 12 in verse 2, and it says this. It says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so as we think about this, we want to think about the relationship that we have with the world. So Paul starts off in verse 1, he talks about the relationship that we have with God, and he says, what God wants from us most is that we would surrender our lives to him. But then he moves to verse 2, and he talks about how we have this relationship also with the world and the world system. And so here's, here's a question for you is, when you think about the world around us, do you think that we as believers live in a hostile environment? Yes. Okay. I think a lot of us would say, absolutely, we live in a hostile world. In fact, I, I would guess that a lot of us feel like uh, that the hostility towards believers and towards God's word and its truth has increased in measure recently. And there's different examples that you could give to probably highlight that. But a lot of times we think about this sort of broad world system and the impact that it has on our faith. And so we see sort of like the shrinking of uh, religious freedoms that we might want and maybe we feel like we've once had as a country. And so it can sort of feel like as days move forward, we live more and more in a hostile environment. In fact, it's kind of interesting if you just look at near recent history in the 1990s, Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act and it uh, held to the conservative traditional values of marriage. And here we are, uh, you know, a little less than 30 years later, and uh, it is very different now. And now we would say that conservative traditional values in terms of marriage and family are under heavy criticism at best, right? And I, I think that we would probably agree that beyond that, at least in certain forums and certain uh, sort of public squares, if you will, uh, that it's not just under heavy criticism, uh, but that it's considered hate speech or uh, you're a bigot if you hold to conservative traditional values of marriage. And that was just in a swing that was just in a short period of time, wasn't it? But here's the thing, right? It wasn't, it wasn't just that. Even before that, if you look back in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, there was the rise of abortion. And uh, it was the contention over the conservative values of the sanctity of human life. And this was a major issue. And it felt as believers, as Christians, that we were living in a hostile environment. And before that, we had the onset of really the proclamation of evolution, specifically within our educational system. And it was uh, sort of the, the, the conflict against conservative traditional values 
and ideas about creation. And those things were under attack and it was pervading not just sort of, you know, general thinking, but it was pervading our schools and governing systems and, and it is even to this day. And so my point is, is that, you know, sometimes we can feel like we're in the midst of this hostile environment and yet if we look through history, right, hostility has been set in motion from the very beginning against God's word and God's truth. In fact, Jesus himself said that, that if you follow me and you love me, that the world is going to hate you, right? And so there is this hostile environment that we're in. But let me step back even a little bit farther away from that and consider this, that hostility is more than just a political issue or a governing issue, right, in terms of maybe the nation. But hostility really is a heart issue, isn't it? Right? Colossians chapter 1 talks about that we are adversaries, that we are enemies towards God in the wickedness of our hearts, that we are born with a hostility set against God, that we are born with a heart that is prone towards things that are not of God. And so really, the hostility issue is a heart issue. It's a, it's a humanity issue. It's a sin issue. And so sometimes it gets sort of magnified in the public square and in sort of the, the political elements of things. But really the hostile issue, the hostility issue, is in the hearts of people. It's in the hearts of mankind. And so what is it that God wants to do? He wants to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds so that we would not conform to the world. And so what does this relationship look like and how must we be set apart from the world's values? If, if, again, if you have your Bibles, if you would just flip over with me, I want to share with you a few ideas based in the story of Daniel. So if you go to the Old Testament, and just like last week, we kind of unpacked Romans 12.1, looking at the life of Abraham. I want to unpack with you a little bit Romans 12.2, looking at the life of Daniel. We'll be in chapter 1 primarily, and then kind of do some overview of the rest of his life as we continue on. But here's, here's why. I think that Daniel's journey reveals how to get God's best for our lives in a hostile environment. And so when we think about getting God's best, it deals with the hostility issue of our own hearts. But that hostility plays out in our world. And it is part of a world system that is set in conflict. It is an adversary to the work and the will of God. And so when we look at Daniel's life, it is a measure of how to interact in a world, in an environment that is hostile towards God. Let me give you just a little bit of a brief background, uh, the historical setting, if you will, of Daniel. Uh, it was in, written in 605 B.C., um, and it's at a time when Babylon is the most powerful empire in the world. And Babylon has a king, and his name is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is on the move, and he is conquering one people group after another, one nation after another. And he is conquering kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. At this time, Babylon is known as uh, a city of the mystery religions, uh, they're endorsing things like magicians and sorcery and uh, sort of mystic arts. Uh, they are an arrogant and immoral 
people. In many ways, you know, sometimes we kind of think of Las Vegas as being sin city, right? And Babylon makes Las Vegas look like Sunday school class. It is, it's to the nth degree in terms of the immorality. And so at this particular time, God's people are living in Jerusalem, but they're not following God. They're not aligned with God's will. And God had made a promise and a warning to the people of Israel. And we see this in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. But this is what he says. He says, if you walk with me, then I'll be your God and you will be my people. I I love you and I care about you and I want you to get the very best. But if you turn away from me, if you worship idols, if you will not fear me, then I will bring judgment. I will scatter you to the corners of the earth. And so this is the thing is that sometimes there is this judgment that happens when we're not walking with the Lord. And, and we see this in the nation of Israel from you know, time to time over and over again in a cycle. But it's this call to be in relationship with God. And when we step out of relationship, when we step out of fellowship, it's not that God says you will no longer be my people and he abandons them. But what he says is that if you're not going to walk with me, if you're not going to walk in fellowship, if you're not going to walk in obedience, then there's going to be judgment that's going to come. Sometimes uh, people will have a lot of boldness, right? And and they'll sort of say that there's different things that happen in our world. Uh, Maybe they're natural events. Maybe they're uh, acts of evil that happen. And people will get up and say, this is a judgment of God. And, you know, and I don't don't know. And I don't know, you know, I'm not going to make any comments about their Uh, views on that and that's between them and the Lord about their convictions but the reality is this is that God has a history of and has communicated to his people that he will use judgment as a way to realign people's hearts and so we see this in Daniel chapter 1 so if you have your Bibles Daniel chapter 1 starting in verses 1 and 2 this is what it says it says in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So it's interesting. I'll stop here to note who was it that allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to besiege Jerusalem and to overtake it? Who was it that basically allowed the bad guys to win? Well, it was God that allowed it to happen. Why? Because judgment would bring about realignment. Judgment would cause them to realize and wake up and see that they were missing the true God in their lives. And this can happen for us today as well. When we do things as a nation or an individual that are on the wrong path, eventually judgment will come. And we see this in our lives all the time. And God will, you know, when we're walking away from the Lord, God has a way of applying pressure in our lives to refocus us, to bring us back on track. Now, now here's what I would say is I would say not everything that happens, right, is directly a result of the judgment of God. But there are some times that some things happen that cause judgment, right, that cause things happen in our lives so that we would refocus our lives on the work and the will of God. 
And so sometimes God allows very difficult and painful things in our lives to get us back onto God's path. He'll allow pressure to be applied to our finances, to our job, to our relationships, to our communities, to our health. And again, not all of the time does this mean that you're under judgment of God, right? But there are times that God will allow these things to happen in our lives so that it will refocus us and realign us with the heart of God. And here's, here's what I would argue, is that most of the time we know when there's things that are happening in our lives and things are sort of falling apart, we don't normally have to take four or five days to figure out whether or not this is judgment from God, right? Because it might just be a trial that God wants us to endure so that we can grow in our faith. But a lot of times, it is the sin that's in our lives, it's the defiance, right, the disobedience, and we know, we know what we're doing. And when these things happen in our lives, we don't have to spend days thinking about it, right? A lot of times, we know right away that there is a problem that is in our lives that needs to be addressed. And this is what God was doing in the nation of Israel. But one of the things I think that is important for us to think about here is that God's judgment and God's wrath is actually part of God's love and grace for us, right? Thank God that we no longer live in the days of Ananias and Sapphira where we sin against God and he immediately removes us from the earth. But in his grace and in his love, he allows measures of his judgment to be poured out on us so that we would have opportunities, why? To surrender, to come back and to be able to say, you know what, I was trying to do this on my own. I thought that this was the way I wanted to live my life, but I recognize that it's not the way that you've called me to. And so it's not that we do these things to just sort of check a bunch of boxes so that we can somehow look holy to God, but it is a love relationship. It's a response where we have a heavenly father that loves us. And so we respond and we acknowledge God that what you want for our lives is actually what's best. It's actually what is good. And so I want to embrace these things and I want to share in the fellowship of these things so that I can experience blessing in, our life, in my life. But a lot of times we have to be brought back and reminded of those things. And so this is what's happening to the nation of Israel and the people in Jerusalem specifically. King Nebuchadnezzar is a very smart conqueror and he knows that if he just conquers different sections of land and he's you know, sort of spreading his empire uh, to the far reaches of the world and he knows that he just kind of leaves it be that eventually uh, they will sort of get together and collude together and they will form a coup and overtake him. And so he's very smart. He decides that he's going to separate them. He's going to take people from one nation and spread them around all over the nation so that they can't collaborate together, so that they can't come together. I think just as a quick aside, it's a telling statement for us as a church that when we come together as a church in Christian fellowship, there is the power of the Holy Spirit that we cannot be a part of in isolation. God's desire for us is to come together. And the interesting thing is, is that the world system knows that there is power in the unity of the body of Christ. And so one of the things that the world system will seek to do is to divide and to separate and to isolate believers out and to separate the unity that we have in Christ. And so they did this. They deported the royal family from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
and they wanted to brainwash them. They wanted to reform their view on things. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. It says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And so what do they do? They institute a new worldview. They, they take the best and the brightest, the good-looking people, and they bring them into the court, and they are going to teach them, and they are going to redefine their worldview. See, here's the thing, is that all of us have a worldview, and we have a way of looking at things in the world, a perspective, a lens with which we see the events of the world take place. And God wants us to have a biblical worldview, to see things through his lens, to perceive and to respond to things the way that he sees them. But the world seeks to shift that worldview. There is a world system that is actively at work right now to change how we view the circumstances of our lives. And again, this is what's happening. They were trying to incorporate a Babylonian worldview. They wanted them to read their wisdom books, uh, to be trained by their magicians and sorcerers, to change their diet. And they were going to ultimately try to change everything about them. And they wanted them to forget. They wanted them to forget that they were Jews. They wanted them to forget that their God, Yahweh, and they wanted to see themselves as Babylonians. And so we have a Babylonian system, and it was a, it was a game plan for them. And, and here's, here is the idea, is that the Babylonians wanted to seduce Daniel's soul. They wanted to change who he was and his friends. And really, we see this in the following verses Look at verses 5 through 7. It says, The king assigned them, assigned, assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. And so they, Babylon, right, this world system, has a game plan to seduce Daniel and his friends and to steal their souls, if you will, to completely in, in mold them into the world system that Babylon was about. And they did this, I think, in three primary ways. And I think that this is still relevant for us today. I think this is a pattern for how the world still operates today. The first is that it, they tried to change his thinking. It's getting information into their heads that would cause them to forget about their roots. And so one of the main things that the world system does is it begins to infect our thinking. It begins to infect how we view God and how we view the world. And there is nothing more dangerous than a system that tries to make us forget about what God is saying and to ignore the truth of God's word and begin to adopt our own thoughts and our own ideas. And the reason for that is because we are the product of our thought life, aren't we? 
The things that are in our head, that is who we become. See, we can say that we believe whatever we want to say, but the reality is that the, the, the life that we live is evidence of what we truly believe. And you can kind of spout whatever you want to spout, but actions speak louder than words, don't they? And so this is, this is the reality. And we might think, even in our own lives, that we're dealing with different things and we're thinking, well, it's just in my head and I'm not really hurting anybody. This is the, the great lie of pornography, right? Is that it's, it's just between me and my computer screen and there's not, I'm not hurting anybody and it's just the secret thing and it's not really going to affect anything. But it's changing our thinking and how we think will become the product of our life. And eventually... There's all kinds of studies that have shown this, is that pornography begins to impact and destroy our lives and our relationships and our marriages in any elements of intimacy that we desire. It destroys it. Maybe you're somebody that just has a lot of anger or bitterness in your life and, and you just have this rage and this hatred and you think, well, I just, I kind of bottle it all up and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really affect anybody. But the reality is, is that eventually those things pour out, Right? Because our lives are the product of how we think. And so they start by trying to change his thinking. But notice it doesn't just end there. They began to change his worship. We see this specifically with the change of names. Uh, they were given very specific names that had a lot of significance and meaning. Uh, Daniel, for example, means God is my judge. And he was given the name Belshazzar, which means the wife of Marduk, which is one of the Babylonian gods. And so it was a change, literally, of his identity. It was a change of worship because it was taking away that which was identified with God and replacing it with something that was identified with the world. That's what worship is, right? Where do we give our allegiance? Where do we align our identity? It is, it is who we praise, and this begins to shift. They change the names in a very literal way. They're changing the identity of Daniel and Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's a shift in worship. And then lastly, we see a change in his lifestyle. You know, they begin to try to change his diet. They want him to eat meat that has been sacrificed to the Babylonian gods. I think about, you know, these changes, right? And, and boy, how things have changed in terms of, uh, you know, how we think about heroes in our lives. I, I remember reading uh, back in the late 90s, they took a poll of young kids and asked, you know, what is, you know, one of the main things, you know, people that you want to be like someday. And what came out of that poll was the most desired occupation was to be an assistant manager of a rock and roll band. It's kind of a weird, kind of a weird thing, right? But you know, there, you know, we we have shifted. There, there's this change of thinking, and you have the people that you know, these rock stars. You have athletes. You have prominent people in our, uh, you know, leaders leaders in our world, and and people aspire to do this, and it it begins to form and to mold how they think, and it begins to become who they worship, and then eventually it will change their lifestyle. I, I think that this pattern is definitely true for us today. Sometimes I, I think that, you know, we get into a situation where we see these changes in lifestyle and we sort of throw our hands up and we wonder what's going on. 
I've served in youth ministry for many, many years. And one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of times uh, kids, as they get older, you know, they'll begin to make decisions that are uh, not good decisions, right? They're, they're making bad decisions. And so parents will come and they'll say, well, man, can you help? Because my child is making these bad decisions. They're making bad lifestyle choices. And you, you know what oftentimes is the problem? The problem is, is that they're too late to the game because there's already been a change in thinking and a change in worship. And now there's a change in lifestyle. And really, the change in lifestyle is the result of the change in thinking and the change of worship. And they spent so many years trying to coddle and be friends with their kid and to, to not want to you know, force them to do anything that was going to make them uncomfortable. They didn't want to force them to go to church. They didn't want to force them to be involved in the youth ministry. They didn't want to force them to do anything. They just wanted to sort of be friendly with them. And you know what happened was that over time, the world system changed their thinking, and then it changed their worship, and then it changed their lifestyle, their behaviors. And by that point in the game, it's not that God can't do anything, right? It's not that God can't go back and redeem and restore those things, but it, has, it takes a lot more to undo some of the damage that's been done. The heroes for our youth have changed. You know, it's no longer just, you know, the, the popular people in our sports world and on our uh, public eye, um, but it's a change that's happened in their own hearts. It's a change that's happened in their thinking and in their worship. But I praise God that God is not defeated, amen, and that God has his own game plan. You know, Babylon and in the world system might have its game plan, but God has a game plan of his own. And we see that in Romans 12 too, and we see that here in Daniel, that God's game plan is to transform Babylon, to transform the world system. Look in verse 8. It says this, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. I love that. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. And so God had his own game plan that he was going to use Daniel and his friends. And he was going to bring about transformation. That they would not conform to the Babylonian system, but they would be transformed. And ultimately bring transformation to a nation. Keep in mind here that Daniel and his three friends were probably between the ages of like 14 and 17 years old. And they resolved themselves to be in God's will. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter even how long you've known the Lord. You can resolve to do the will of God. I wonder, you know, for us, you know, would you be willing to send your teenagers or your kids when they were teenagers you know, to send them off to Vegas to live for three years with no parental oversight and trust how they would turn out. I think, at least for me, that would be pretty scary. But they became God's inside men. And over three different kingdoms, they changed the course of the world because they had resolve to follow the will of God. Daniel was not a vegetarian but he recognized by giving up, right, surrendering his rights that he could follow the will of God and that he could glorify him. And so Daniel asked 
for a different 10-day trial diet. And so in verse 15, you can look and it says, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. And then verse 17 says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. You see what happens? God has a game plan here. And so Daniel does not conform to the system, but he allows God to speak into his life. He follows God's will and God transforms him. And really physically, right, he is better off than everybody else who ate the meat. And then God blesses them. That when we want God's very best in our life, it involves surrendering to the Lord, but then separating ourselves from the world's values. And when we do this, then we receive the blessings of God. Verse 18 is kind of this final exam. It says that no one was found to be equal with these four. And so Daniel and his friends got the very best. And so how do we, how do, we do this, right? We, we see the Babylonian system. that This is their strategy to change our thinking, to change our worship, to change our lifestyle. But God has his own system. And so let me just share with you a few ideas about maybe how God would go about bringing transformation in a hostile environment in our world today. And, and really, I'm sharing this with you um, kind of as, as, a, as a, a, the heart of a youth pastor, right? Somebody who is, uh, I, I just have a burden for children and youth. Uh, I've been doing it for a long time, and I don't have all the answers. But, but here's, here's a few thoughts, I think, based off of what we see here in Daniel. Uh, one is that we need to prepare the next generation to change the world. We need to prepare them. We are not at the mercy of pagan culture. The future of our world is going to be determined by who captures the next generation. And, and let me say, the world is doing a great job. They're doing a great job of capturing the next generation because they have figured out how to change the thinking and to change the worship that will ultimately change the lifestyle. The world is a pro at this, and so we need to be intentional about it. Protection of our children from our culture is impossible, but preparation is imperative. See, we can think like, I'm just going to move to Montana, and I'm going to buy a cabin in a hole in the ground, and I am going to you know, convince my kids that the internet doesn't exist and have no screens, but what, what's the reality, right? It's impossible, that we can't shelter them from these things. And so what we need to be about is preparing them to teach them, to train up their thinking, to inform and enforce their worship so that their lifestyle will be in the direction that God wants them to. Now, is this a perfect solution in every way? No. As you know, sometimes as parents, things derail, things that are outside of our control. At the end of the day, children have to make their own choices kids, young adults have to decide for themselves what they're going to believe. All we can do as parents is do the very best that we can to emulate and to teach the word of God. And then we have to trust him, right? They're his kids. We have to trust him. And if they go off and if they choose to make different decisions, 
Rather than feeling the guilt and shame of that, we can trust that we have a God that loves them even more than we do and that he is faithful and that he never gives up. Biblical resolve with the next generation can transform culture. It it can. And it can transform the culture of our day in the same way that God used a group of teenagers in Daniel's day. You think about Daniel's parents in this. Um, They had parents probably who taught them uh, what is true and what is false. You know, parents that said, this is, this is the true God. Uh, these are the temptations uh, of false gods. This will allow you to experience grace and the, the good life and blessing with God. And these are the things that are going to bring destruction. This will be real attractive on the front end, but it's going to bring death. These are the things that are going to be really hard on the front end, but they're the things that are going to bring life, Right? As parents, uh, we herald regularly this idea of choose this day who you will serve. Right? That's, that's what we do, and that's what God does for us. Choose this day. Will you surrender? And if, if you're going to surrender, then it means that you're going to separate, that you're going to be different and allow God to transform your life. I, one pastor put it this way. I like this quote. He said, preparing the next generation only happens with intentionality. It happens by modeling. It happens by saying, I'm going to be careful about what's going on into what's going into my mind and the mind of my children. Parents read books on different techniques, but you want to know what your kids will really be like? Just go home and look in the mirror for about 20 minutes. That's what they're going to be like. They're going to be like you. They're going to be like me. They're going to, be, they're going to think like mom and dad. They're going to drive like mom and dad. They're going to approach work ethic like mom and dad. They're going to drink like mom and dad. They're going to deal with addictions like mom and dad. They're going to be just like us. And so the greatest parenting advice that anybody can give is to say, live a godly surrendered life and walk with Christ. Now, let me reiterate that. Does that automatically equate to Christian believing, walking in fellowship children? No, it doesn't. They still have to make their own choices. They still have their own decisions. And that can break the hearts of parents. But listen, in the same way that you strive to imitate Christ to your children, you can imitate Christ in the way that you pray and that you love on your kids and you trust in God's faithfulness that he has them in, their, in, in his hands. And however just sad and defeated and, and just broken you feel about where maybe your kids are at, you can have assurance that God feels that even more and that he has the power and he, that he is chasing them, that he is pursuing them and that he will never give up on them even in greater ways than what you can do as a parent. But we set an example. We model these things. You think about, like we talked about, this idea of heroes. Who is the hero of kids these days? They change their thinking. They change their worship. They change their lifestyles. We, we live in a world where 
we as individuals have become the star of our own show, right? Isn't that the fundamental element of social media? The whole point of social media is basically to put your life on display so that everybody can see and applaud or like, right? That that's kind of the point of it all. And so we have become the stars of our own show. Some of the biggest people in, in terms of fame and influence and fortune right now are people that are on YouTube making silly videos. And it's their life on display. They, we, have, we live in a culture where we have become the star of the show. And you look back, it's not just a lifestyle thing, but it's a worship thing. It's a thinking thing that has changed. It's no longer that God is at the center of my life and I surrender my will to him, but it's I'm the center of my life. And so I do what makes me happy. I stay true to myself and that's what really matters. And that's the attack. And so preparation is key. A second thought on this is just to position godly people in places of influence. God does this with Daniel and his friends. And, and here's the thing, the only way that we're going to transform the world around us, the world system around us, is not just by being Christians and going to church. The way that we transform the world is by being Christians that are living out godly character in the world around us, in the marketplace, in the public square, in the schools, in our workplaces, that it is about living out the character of God. It's not just being able to show up and say, well, I went to church this week and I attended this Bible study and I read this, but it's actually living out the relationship that brings about transformation. And God has uniquely positioned each one of us in a sphere, in a place, in a location where you have friends and you have neighbors and you have family members and you have coworkers and you have people in your community that are watching and looking. And they're not looking for people that have good church attendance. They're looking for people that are authentic and genuine in their love for God. And then the third one is prosper those who follow his ways over the ways of Babylon or the world system. God will use people and he will bring about his blessing. In Daniel 1.21, it says that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus which is 539 BC. So he was there from 605 to 539 BC. He was there for a long time. God did a continual work because of the transformation that happens in, in the lives of these four young men, right? It's not just a one and done thing, but God continues to do work. Did you know that there is a work that God wants to do in your life right now to transform more of who you are into his image and it is a work that will bear fruit and bring blessing for the rest of your life. You can do the work now of surrender that will yield the benefits for years to come, not just for you but for future generations. It's an investment in spirituality. And so we see all of this in Daniel's life. And so let me just kind of share with you a couple of principles and kind of step back and look at the bigger picture of the life of Daniel. Daniel had confidence. Just like Abraham had confidence in God's promises and character that brought about sacrifice and surrender, Daniel also had confidence in God's promises and character. And this confidence was the secret to his convictions and courage. Daniel and his friends, they, they had conviction and they had courage. That 
was the core component of the transformation that happened. And their conviction and their courage resulted in a willingness to surrender to God. And it brought about the blessings of God in their lives and really for the nation of Israel. In our world today, I think that there's a lot of people that are offering propositions of truth. There's a lot of people that are trying to sell truth. Truth is whatever you want it to be. Truth is whatever has value for you. There's a lot of different propositions of truth. If you look at magazines, right, People Magazine, their proposition of truth is is framed around fame and influence. If you look at Forbes Magazine, their proposition of truth is framed around fortune. If you look at a magazine like Cosmo, their proposition of truth is framed around appearance and looks and identity. But God has a different proposition of truth, doesn't he? His proposition of truth is this, that Jesus lived the perfect life, that he died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead, that he loves me and he has my best interests in mind, that if I take up his cross and follow him, that I will have blessing in my life. Surrender and sacrifice are a radically different truth proposition than what the world is offering. But it is the truth that God has for each one of us. And so this happens in conviction and courage. They, they were men of conviction, refusing to compromise in spite of the cost. Conviction means I am willing to move forward with what God has for my life, even if it costs me something, because I have a conviction that this is what God wants me to do. You can read later on if you want to go back and look, but you know the end of the story, uh, or kind of the middle of Daniel, five, chapters 5 and 6, it talks about Daniel in the lion's den, right? And Daniel has risen to prominence. He has a relationship with the king. People don't like that. They're jealous. They're trying to trap him, so they cause the king to create a decree that tells him, That they can't pray to anybody else except for the king. And what does Daniel do? He throws open his window and he prays three times a day. And the result is what? That he ends up in the den of lions. But praise God, God intervenes and he sends an angel who closes the mouths of the lion and he spares Daniel's life. But listen, it was conviction that could have had big cost. It was conviction that could have cost him his life. But Daniel didn't compromise. When he was 80 years old, it was illegal to pray. He opens his window, he prays, and he ends up in the lion's den. The same thing could be true for us. But but here's the thing, that's the difference with conviction, right? Convictions are caught more than taught. There are things that are lived out in our lives. Proverbs 13, verse 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of the fools will suffer harm. Conviction oftentimes only comes through personal discovery. Conviction happens when we are met at our end, where we have to make a decision between what God wants and what the world wants. When we're put in a hard spot and we have to make a choice, and it's not just a choice that we can sort of finagle around or we can sidestep, but it's a choice that's going to cost us. The average Christian in our day is filled with beliefs that we think we believe, but they're not really convictions. And the reason we know why is because when they're under pressure, when there's a test that comes along, we talked about these tests last time in Abraham's life, we cave. 
We fail. And so that's the thing. Surrender won't happen. We'll fail these tests if we don't have conviction. If, if we're just checking boxes and we're doing the Christian thing and we're sort of making all the steps because it's what people do and it's easy and it's just kind of what's expected and it's what our parents have done and it's how we've been raised and whatever the reason is. And it's not really an alignment heart issue with God. It's not something where we've devoted ourselves. Then when the test comes and we are asked to surrender everything before God, we'll fail, we'll cave because we don't have a conviction in our hearts. But listen, when we are convicted about God's truth and the test comes, then we can stand strong and we can walk in obedience. And that also takes courage. Courage is refusing to conform even when you're afraid. Right? It's not to say that we don't have fears. It's not to say that we don't have concerns. It's not to say that what costs us doesn't also terrify us. Think about the story in Daniel chapter 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They had conviction, but they also had courage as they were thrown into the fiery furnace. They had no idea what was going to happen. They had no assurance that Jesus was going to show up and deliver them from that. But they had conviction and they had courage. I think courage grows out of our convictions and it is sustained by our fellowship, right? Conviction is sustained by the one another. This is why unity in the body of Christ is so important. It's why we still gather here. It's why we gather and worship together. It's because courage comes out of the unity of the body of Christ, that we can pray for one another, that we can spur one another on. But the point of our encouragement here is so that we have the courage to live out the conviction of our lives so that we can surrender to the will of God and separate from the values of the world. Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. We, we need one another. We need one another. Sometimes we think dependency on one another is a lack of courage. It's a sign of weakness. But really, dependency on one another is an act of courage because it fortifies our convictions and it sustains our obedience. So here's, here's kind of the reality as I sort of wrap this up, right? Is that Daniel's life reveals that getting God's best is a no-yes proposition. It really is a no-yes proposition. And I kind of phrased it that way on purpose. If you go back uh, to, uh, for, to Romans chapter 12, Verse 2, it talks about, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's saying no to the system of the world and embracing and saying yes to the game plan or the system that God has for us. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will and so we say no i will not conform any longer to the present world system and yes i will allow myself to be transformed by the renewing of my mind i will allow god's worldview a biblical worldview to form my thinking i will worship god and god alone and then my lifestyle will emulate the life of christ 
through his grace and his power. See, it's truth, not just trying harder or being better. It's truth that is the pathway to true spirituality. It's surrendering to God's truth, and it is having conviction about God's truth, even even when the world around us seeks to destroy, seeks to break apart, seeks to distort and to change the values that we know we have in God's word. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It really is truth that guides us. So we go back to the original question then, and that's this, is how do you get God's best for your life? Do you want God's best for your life? Is that something that you desire? Is that something that's important? I hope so. So part of it, right, is giving God what he wants most, surrendering to him, but part of it is separating ourselves from the world's values. And it means that we align ourselves with God's truth, that we stand with conviction and we stand with courage. And so let me just kind of, in your notes, there's a couple of questions to kind of think about in terms of application. And the first is this, is, What or who do you need to say no to that is squeezing you into the world's mold? Because a lot of times, like I said at the beginning, I think that we know. We we know the areas of our life where we are pulled into the seduction of the world. And maybe it's a private, hidden addiction. Maybe it is a public disregard and disobedience or whatever it is. But here's the point, is that we're not just addressing these things and changing these things because they're the right things to do, even though they are. But we address these things and we change these things because we have a Heavenly Father that loves us and He desires for us to surrender to His will, not out of obligation, but out of a response. And when we do that, He has blessings untold for our lives. That when we stand on conviction and with courage, even when it costs us, that there is blessing that awaits. Sometimes, you know, we have situations when we're in relationships or we're at work and we feel the pull to operate out of the flesh. We feel the pull that, you know, if we just sort of compromise in these areas, if we just kind of ignore these rules or these laws, then we can benefit from it. But when we have the courage to stand on conviction and to do things God's way, there is no telling the blessing that God can provide in our lives. And he's just asking. He's just asking, are you, are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to separate and do things different, to allow your life to be transformed because there's too many Christians right there's too many Christians that are trying to be in the Christian box but they've got certain things that they don't want to surrender and they want to stay in bed with the world and the world system they like it it's warm it's comfortable it's where they think things are going to go the way that they want But what you don't realize is that you're missing out on all the blessing that God has and that this eventually will lead to destruction. You look in the book of Revelation and we see at the end here that even in the very end, right, 
book of Revelation is really a book that is about worshiping the Lord. And even in the end, when he is pouring out his judgment and wrath, he is doing it to give people an opportunity so that they would be realigned and come into relationship with him and be saved from eternal punishment and judgment. Even at the very end, in the very last moments, God exercises judgment and wrath as an act of love so that people would be drawn to a place of worship. I don't know what's going on in your life. I know the things that God is doing in my life. And here's the challenge, is that God allows things to happen in our lives. Sometimes they can be painful. Sometimes they can be hard. But it is a soft reminder. Problems, circumstances, trials are soft reminders that we need to realign ourselves with the Lord so that we can surrender everything that we have to him so that we can enjoy all that he has promised us. And so what do you need to do to say yes in order to renew your mind and experience God's good, acceptable, and perfect will? Maybe there's a step that you need to take that is a step of confession and just confessing sin where you've been tied and entangled with a world system and you know it and you know that it's wreaking havoc in your world and God is waiting to receive you back if you will simply repent and turn to him maybe it's just a matter of surrender and God is looking for you to surrender something in a greater way out of a conviction of your heart so that he can give you even greater blessing in your life and I don't know what that looks like for each one of us. But the, the goal, again, is not to just do better or try harder or be better somehow. But it is to engage in an intimate relationship with a Heavenly Father that loves you. We're currently in, uh, going to be starting, I think, next week, uh, a prayer study going through a book. There's books that are in the back that are available It's a great way, right, not to check a box and say that we're doing something, but it's a great way to engage and initiate in relationship with God, to retune our hearts to his calling. How is God calling you to a deeper relationship with him? Where is he asking for surrender and sacrifice? Where is he looking for conviction and courage? Let's pray. Lord God, we, once again, we just come to you and we acknowledge our need for you. And God, we know that there is a a world system that is hostile towards you and your word and your truth and hostile towards us as believers. And God, we are constantly being pulled and surrounded by a system that wants to change how we think and, and who we worship and how we live our lives. And so God, I pray that you would help us to align ourselves with you, that we would separate, that we'd not be conformed by this world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God, that we would be people of conviction and courage. And God, I pray for all of us as a church, God, that you would use us to be salt and light in the world around us. But God, I I pray for our younger generation. Father, we know that the attack is real. God, we know that what's on the line 
is significant. But God, we know that there is hope because there are young men and women who are being raised up, who know your truth, who genuinely love you and want to serve you. God, we pray that they would be men and women of conviction and courage. And God, that when the trials of this world and the hostility of the enemy comes against them, God, that they would stand strong, that they would be fortified in your truth, they would be confident on the basis of your character and your promises. And God, that their conviction would cause the transformation, not just of our own lives, but of the lives of the people around them and of our world. God, we pray for our nation. We pray for transformation to take place. God, we pray that you would do a work in our lives that would translate into the lives of the people around us, that would translate into the lives of the world around us. God, so that more people might know you and be saved by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.